0: That there is Commons Associate Producer Noor Azria doing one of her favorite things, unboxing.
1: I love mail. I love packages. I love, like, getting mail. I check my mailbox daily, even though I know nothing is coming. But I, I, I like even those, like, flyers that they send out. You can definitely guess how excited I am when I actually do order something online and it does show up at my door.
0: And I don't think Noor's alone in this. But for her, part of the magic is just how fast it all is.
1: In Qatar, it's so difficult to, like, get packages and mail. Like, we don't have, like, a mailing system the way that Canadians do. So I was obsessed with the idea of just, like, being able to order things and they arrive to my doorstep the next day.
0: And so, of course, Noor has been a loyal subscriber to Amazon Prime.
1: I am an Amazon Kinda girl. I've had Amazon Prime for like four years. And with Amazon Prime means that I love to shop online for random bullshit. So now I'm gonna pull out some scissors and open this bad boy up. Holy crap. I'm so excited. I got a (laughs) 27-inch. A 27-inch monitor. I currently have a 20 or 24 inch, but it's kind of old. So like, it needed a replacement. I love you, Amazon. I really do. I, I have many complaints, but the feeling that I get when your packages are at my door is surreal. Surreal.
0: Amazon is unavoidable in the modern world. This week, I ordered new bedsheets from Amazon, which were also made by Amazon. I watched a few episodes of Mr. Robot on Amazon Prime Video. A huge proportion of the websites I visited were hosted on Amazon Web Services. In order to prepare for this episode, I bought a book about Amazon on Amazon, and you might even be listening to this podcast on Amazon Music. The big tech companies have ushered in a new era of global monopoly, and the most influential, the most powerful of all of them, is Amazon. So on this episode, we're going to focus in on two of Amazon's most important products and what they reveal to us about the nature of the big tech monopolies that surround us. More after the break. it's hard to overstate the importance of Amazon in today's global economy.
2: They really influence huge amounts of how American and then society all over the world works. My name is Matt Stoller, and I am the director of research at the American Economic Liberties Project. I'm the author of a book, Goliath, The Hundred-Year War Between Monopoly, Power, and Democracy. And I write a monopoly-focused newsletter called Big. Roughly 50% of online sales go through Amazon, and the rest is fragmented. Amazon is, is a Massive, massive player in the retail economy. It's also a significant player in cloud computing. You know, they have everything from a studio, a movie studio, to like a fashion house. They design their own semiconductors. They have a, a giant logistical infrastructure. They are one of the largest airlines in the country, but they do freight. It's a uh, an enormous and important financial, political, and social institution in the U.S. and then also all over the world.
0: And maybe the best comparison point for Amazon comes from nearly a century earlier. Standard Oil, the company that made John D. Rockefeller the richest man in history and the poster child for exploitative monopolies.
2: It's much more like Standard Oil than some of the other monopolies. Standard Oil used similar techniques. Predatory pricing was a big one. So Standard Oil would sell kerosene in one market. Where they had Monopoly, they would sell it for a really high price, and then they would sell it in other market where there's competition, they would price below cost and then they would they would drive their rivals out of business. But they also used a lot of similar techniques to Amazon in the form of surveillance. So one of the things Amazon does is they get to see everyone that's selling through their platform, they, they have a perfect view of everything they're selling and the prices they're selling it for. And then they can use that to compete with them if they want to or to bargain with them. And Standard Oil had something similar. They controlled a lot of the railroads. They didn't own them, but they controlled them. And they also controlled pipelines or owned pipelines and uh, refineries. And so they saw what oil drillers were sending to them or they saw what rival refineries were doing and they could use that information to bargain against them or to try to acquire them or compete against them or drive their rivals costs up. A lot of the things that Amazon did or does standard oil did. So one of the reasons why Amazon, you see this kind of like standard oil type of institution emerge it's because we stopped enforcing the laws that were put in place after Standard Oil to block the reemergence of a Standard Oil like entity. It's not a surprise that when you stop doing things to prevent the reemergence of a new Rockefeller, you get a new Rockefeller.
0: So, how did Amazon get to the place where it is? Brad Stone has been following the company for a long time now.
3: I'm Brad Stone, a senior executive editor for global technology at Bloomberg News. And I'm also the author of two books about Amazon. Amazon Unbound, which came out in 2021. And the first book was The Everything Store, Jeff Bezos and the Age of Amazon, which came out way back in 2013 and it was about the early days of Jeff Bezos and Amazon.
0: When he wrote his first book on Amazon, he says that the company was overlooked compared to other big tech firms like Google, Facebook, Apple, and Microsoft.
3: People thought it was A retailer, a remnant of the first dot-com boom, an unprofitable company. And because I had a pretty good perch, I saw that they were doing interesting things. That There were aspects of the business, like cloud computing, and certainly the Kindle, that were disruptive. Bezos was an interesting figure and that maybe the rest of the world didn't quite get that yet.
0: But after he published the Everything Store, Amazon became an even bigger deal.
3: It was a story of dramatic change and organizational change. A company that had gone from a $200 billion market cap or even less when I wrote the first book in 2013 to, at one point during the pandemic, close to a $2 trillion market cap. So that was extraordinary.
0: Part of this enormous growth has to do with Amazon's very particular corporate culture.
3: Amazon's culture is fiercely idiosyncratic. First of all, the foundational process at Amazon is writing these six-page documents where they're prepared methodically over the course of weeks, and every meeting begins with a kind of meditational reading of the document that will be discussed, and then everybody goes around and and sort of the the boss speaks last, and they they weigh and debate the proposal that's laid out in this document. And it's used for everything from new products to promotions. Even the smallest decisions are organized around this document. It started because that is the way Jeff Bezos likes to process information himself. He's a reader and he believes that complex ideas can be efficiently discussed using these documents. And so, you know, that's the main thing. But he's also created these 15 leadership principles that are memorized and discussed within Amazon. They're like these sacrosanct ideas handed down from afar, almost like religious principles, the commandments of Amazon. And there are lots of ways that decision-making at Amazon is codified by these principles that Bezos himself helped to develop.
0: But Amazon's critics say that much of their success is also rooted in anti-competitive practices. Here's Matt Stoller again. He says that Amazon has a long, well-documented history of predatory pricing, a practice that in the U.S. used to be illegal.
2: Predatory pricing means charging below cost to drive rivals out of business and then usually raising your prices to gain your money back or raising prices elsewhere based on on the acquisition of market power. That used to be illegal. And you used to be able to look and say, oh, you're, you're undercharging and you're clearly losing money on this and you're just doing it to drive your competitors out of business. That's illegal. You can't do it. In the 1970s and 80s, predatory pricing effectively became legal because the argument was, well, look, why are you opposing lower consumer prices? You know, predatory pricing, sure, maybe they're trying to do it for market power, maybe they're not, but it's lower prices for consumers. So why do we care? Now, roll that forward and you get firms like Walmart, which say everyday low prices as their main uh, slogan. Or you have companies like Google, which doesn't charge anything for their search engine or Facebook, A lot of the things that Amazon was doing, like they were driving competitors out of business explicitly by charging below cost.
0: Maybe the best example of this strategy was Diapers.com, an online retailer that sold, well, diapers and other baby supplies.
2: Amazon just reduced prices and said, we're going to kill you and we're going to spend $200 million a month to keep prices below yours. They had an algorithm tracking Diapers.com's prices.
0: Once they'd effectively destroyed the company's market share, Amazon bought out diapers.com and once again, raised prices.
2: That's the kind of thing that Amazon was doing and they built their monopoly by doing that.
0: Now, Amazon is such a large company with so many different business lines that there's just too much to dig into for a single episode. We could talk to you about Amazon Prime, Amazon Studios, Fulfillment by Amazon, Amazon Pay, Amazon Music, Amazon Air, the Echo, the Kindle, Twitch, Audible, Whole Foods. But there's two Amazon products in particular that are the most instructive. First is Amazon Marketplace.
3: Early on, Amazon was basically just a store. It bought things wholesale, you know, primarily books in the beginning, and then it stored them, and then it sold them as at retail. And that wasn't a great business. It was, it was hard to compete with uh, the big box stores. They lost a lot of money on shipping. And in the middle of the dot-com bus, they conceived of the Amazon marketplace, where you could bring sellers, almost like eBay at the time, and have them set up their stores on Amazon and compete with Amazon itself. And as he kind of outlined this new business, Bezos came up with the idea of the flywheel, which is essentially along the lines of, you know, you bring more sellers onto the platform, you know, you create more selection, um, you have sellers competing against each other, you drive down prices, that brings more customers to the site, hunting for deals. And the more customers you have, essentially, the more, the more sellers will come to try to sell to them. And that's, you know, simplistically kind of the flywheel. And you know the idea is that you're, you know, you're cementing the loyalties of both customers and, and other sellers and making Amazon the centers of their online world. And it's, it's been incredibly effective.
0: But in recent years, Amazon has been accused by sellers on Marketplace of abusing the platform to give itself a leg up.
4: For years, there's been speculation that Amazon uses the data on its platform to give itself an advantage. I'm Dana Mattioli, and I'm the Wall Street Journal's Amazon reporter. Sellers have complained, you know, incessantly that their items were being ripped off by Amazon's private brand business. And Amazon has always, you know, fiercely denied that they would ever use this third party data to reverse engineer best-selling products for their like Amazon Basics brands or Amazon Essentials, their their range of private brands. They even testified to Congress in 2019 that they never used this, this data. It always struck me as interesting how defensive they were over the data and the use of it and, and also how they characterized their private brand's business. So, you know, I just started poking around. I, I didn't know what I would find. But after speaking to dozens of people on the private brand side, I was given data that confirmed that they regularly were using the data from third-party sellers, really confidential data to create big hits for Amazon's private brands.
0: Amazon pointed out that they have an internal policy to not use that kind of data and even trains its employees to not use it.
4: What our reporting found was it was very easy for people who wanted to use the data to get an edge to go ahead and get it. And there weren't sufficient firewalls in place to stop them from doing so. So they could kind of skirt any rules that were in place or any warnings not to use it to get access to that data to give them a better chance of producing products that there was a real market for.
0: Take the case of Fortem.
4: They're a Brooklyn-based company with a few employees. It's run by these two CEOs in their early 30s, and they came up with this car trunk organizer, and it became one of the top-selling products in that category on Amazon. Some of the data that was given to me showed that Amazon used their data to create their own competing version of the Fordham car trunk organizer for their brand. But the data that they used was like super specific. It showed exactly how many units were sold in the 12 months prior to getting the report, their margins, their advertising spend, their you know, the rates of return, and all these fields that would really help you determine whether to get into that product category and you know how to competitively price and, and succeed there.
0: Fortem had suspected that Amazon had used their private information to create a competing product, but they didn't have proof until Dana Mattioli provided it to them.
4: I went to breakfast with the Fortem and founders and sort of slid the, the documents across the table to them. And they're like, what's this? And it showed all of their sales data and they pulled it up on their phone and it matched. But they, they had suspected that Amazon had copied them, but they, they didn't know until I, I shared the data with them, right? It's not like every seller would have that.
0: But Fortem still had to be on Amazon.
4: It's this weird push and pull because when you speak to the sellers like Fortem, they sort of say that they couldn't possibly be successful without being on Amazon, right? Because 60% of online searches in the U.S. start on Amazon.com and it commands almost 40% of every product sold in the U.S. at least online is Amazon. So you can't afford not to be there, right? But then you run the risk, especially if you have a best-selling product that you could get ripped off because... You know, they say that Amazon's got all of this data, right? And they could be, like, all-seeing. They were also nervous about being in the story because they said, you know, what if Amazon retaliates against us for being involved? What if they cut their price significantly and we get no sales, right? So there's, there's that, too. So they're, they're angry, but then there's a fear of retaliation.
0: Alongside Amazon Marketplace, the other really core pillar of Amazon's business is something that most people don't really associate with Amazon. It's called Amazon Web Services, or AWS for short. And it is one of the central pieces of infrastructure for our entire digital economy. AWS's origins go back to the aughts.
3: Amazon was hamstrung by a scarcity of computer resources inside its own walls. Basically, computer programmers, developers at Amazon couldn't get the technology to start their experiments and to run their experiments and make changes to the website. And the cloud or Amazon Web Services was conceived of as a way like these developers don't need to get put another computer in their office. They should be able to access the technology over the internet. And that was cloud computing. And Bezos thought it was so promising. I mean, he basically said to his board, if we need it, then other people probably do. And he got them to invest in this thing.
0: Tim Bray knows Amazon Web Services from the inside.
5: My name's Tim Bray, and I'm coming to
0: you from central Vancouver, Canada. Tim is an engineer and a tech industry veteran.
5: I graduated in the 80s and have been doing technology ever since. It's the only thing I've ever done. I did a couple of startups. I uh, was a consultant for a while. I spent uh, four years at Sun Microsystems and four years at Google and five and a half years at Amazon Web Services. And when he joined AWS
0: in 2014, he was excited by the pace of everything and by the kinds of problems that they were tackling.
5: It was a big adrenaline rush. In many, most of my other jobs, I was you know frantically working on evangelizing and developing and presenting a product and getting people to look at it. And there at AWS, our a lot of our service logs were showing growth of one percent a week every week, and it was clear that public cloud was was in a pretty big sweet spot right then. And you know, everything you built, people said, "Yeah, we'll try that. We'll use that." And they were pounding on our doors, saying, "Well, you know, this is great, and we're using it, but we need you also to add features B, C, D, E, and F." And you know, in terms of being engaged with your customers and you know, really making a difference in a lot of people's lives, it was it was pretty compelling place to work.
0: Tim was a Vice President and Distinguished Engineer at Amazon Web Services.
5: And he loved it there. It was a totally great job. Amazon unconsciously builds a culture of what the right way to do things is. And I bought into it. i I thought that, you know, it was it was a well-constructed culture. I liked it. I liked the people i I worked with. The asshole density was substantially lower than almost anywhere else I've ever worked. I was a happy camper working there. It was you know as long as the stock price kept going up, the compensation was really satisfying, too. And Tim says
0: that the secret to Amazon's success is Amazon Web Services. And that's because AWS is extremely, extremely profitable. And all of that money allows the rest of Amazon to run at a loss and to drive out competitors in those industries.
5: I used to do this on Twitter threads, but now I do it in my blog. Every quarter I do a breakdown of the Amazon numbers. For a while there, AWS was running at like 60-80% of all the Amazon profit. These days, it's running at more than 100%. I'm talking about the the margin. The the profit coming off of AWS is higher than the total profit from, from Amazon. If you're somebody trying to compete in the online sales market, you're competing against somebody who doesn't have to make a profit. That's not how markets are supposed to work.
0: In other words, AWS's profitability is what allows Amazon to engage in predatory pricing across its other businesses. Here's Brad Stone again.
3: That's always been the the charge against Amazon that it's core business of of retail of of e-commerce is kind of characteristically unprofitable but that it uses other mechanisms to kind of prop the whole company up. And you look at, you know, the balance sheet and Amazon's a secretive company and sometimes they don't always tell you the whole story, but it's it's clearly true that that AWS is is highly profitable, you know, that retail probably would have had about a $10 billion operating loss in, in 2022.
0: Tim thinks that Amazon Web Services should be split off from the rest of the company, both for the sake of antitrust, but also for AWS itself.
5: If I am a, in the business of, I don't know, tires or life insurance or vacations or any random business, and I use AWS Cloud Computing, I am shuffling money to my competitor because Amazon wants to compete with everybody on everything. So I would think that by splitting those two, you would actually increase the attractiveness of AWS to a lot of businesses. There are businesses who will not do business with AWS because they don't want to subsidize Amazon. And you would also dramatically increase, I think, the fairness of the whole online retail market by yanking the subsidy out from under Amazon. We'd have to find out what an actual business that needs to make a profit is like.
0: So how is it that Tim Bray- who, remember, was a vice president at Amazon Web Services, is willing to be so candid about his views on the company. Well, Tim quit Amazon very publicly back in 2020.
5: COVID came along. There were a lot of concerns expressed about the people in the warehouses, the fulfillment centers. And the company maintained fiercely that they were working really hard and investing huge amounts of money and making those safe places to work. And the workers were saying that, on the other hand, they were terrified, and and uh, you know, being COVID was a big problem for them. There was some talk about unionization, and some activists rose from the ranks, and then some people in the on the office side started, you know, speaking up in solidarity. And the company responded by firing all those people, and and well I snapped I couldn't do it you know I at that point I had VP rank distinguished engineer VP and, and if you're a VP you're on, on the inside you can't you can't publicly disagree with the company um and so I I couldn't stay so so I left
0: he estimates that the decision probably cost him around a million dollars and when he quit Tim decided to blog about it
5: you know, I write about my life. That's what I do, and I write about my life at home and at work. And frankly, I'm, my work life is much more interesting than my home life. So that, that's what uh, gets the attention. And so I wrote about this. You know, large majority of my readership are geeks and software developers and technologists of one sort or another. And I thought, hey, they might be interested in this story. Right. So you know, I wrote a blog describing my feelings and why I had done it, and. Uh, I thought, oh, this is probably going to get on Y Combinator or something like that. So I, I better make sure my system's all tuned. And I ended up sitting up till like two in the morning to make sure that the database was all tuned and everything. And um, so then I wake up in the morning and, well, it, it was crazy.
1: Big business headline at home this morning. A Canadian vice president of Amazon has resigned in protest over the company firing whistleblowers who say the company isn't doing enough to protect workers from the virus
5: that blog got over a million reads or some insane number like that and um you know all my input channels all my input channels you know the, the blog comments my dms on twitter and everything else and so on and my email and it was full of discourse and so yeah i became briefly famous there in the spring of 2020. the the journalist profession really wanted to tell this story about plucky engineer goes up against Jeff Bezos. And I didn't want that story. That, that, that wasn't the right story. And, and the story I wanted was about, you know, the normal processes of capitalism taken to extremes produce extremely ugly results. That's not acceptable.
0: And Tim is still speaking out about the company and the changes that he thinks need to be made to the wider tech industry.
5: There's a story out earlier this week about how the merchants selling things in the Amazon marketplace, Amazon's taking a bigger and bigger and bigger chunk of the revenue, you know, for advertising and fulfilled by Amazon and and, and a variety of things like that. And those merchants in most cases don't really have a choice because to get to their customers, they have to go through Amazon. And that is precisely the classic chapter inverse behavior that you expect out of a monopolist is, you know, once you've become an essential bridge to, Doing business, then you can raise the tolls on the bridge, more or less ad infinitum.
0: We've talked before about the anti-monopoly movement that's growing in America, and if there was a coming-out party for that, it came in the form of an academic paper.
3: It was 2017. There was a, a Yale Law School student named Lena Khan who wrote a, a paper that got a lot of attention called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. And that author, Lena Khan, is is now the chairperson of the FTC.
0: The FTC, short for Federal Trade Commission, is the U.S. government agency tasked with civil antitrust enforcement.
3: And her idea was that, you know, conventional antitrust thinking for many decades in the U.S. had all been about looking at companies sort of unfairly raising prices. But, you know, companies like Amazon, they kept prices low, but they blocked competition. And she pointed to its behavior in in the book markets and in e-commerce in general, and said, you know, we should look at this, this is anti-competitive. Now, what she was, you know, arguing for and the campaign that she's been sort of leading is not just holding these companies accountable, but really rethinking the law and how we evaluate and punish monopolies. And that's, you know, pushing a mountain uphill, and there certainly is not consensus in the U.S. government about it. And it's been a very partisan issue.
0: Earlier this month, the Wall Street Journal reported that the Federal Trade Commission under Lena Khan is preparing a potential antitrust suit against Amazon. Now, Amazon has consistently denied that they engage in anti-competitive behavior. Here's Dana Mattioli, who broke that story about the FTC.
4: So Amazon has repeatedly said that it competes fairly. It serves to benefit both customers and sellers on its platform. They say as a large company, of course, they're open to scrutiny. That comes with the territory. But they have been defensive about, you know, any claims that anything that they've done is improper.
0: So how should our associate producer Noor Azria, Amazon superfan, feel about all of this? Matt Stoller says that he uses Amazon just like most other people.
2: Amazon isn't, isn't bad per se, it's just a monopolist that has captured a technology that should be available to lots of rivals, right? You know, it's important to recognize that what we oppose is the specific business model, not the ability to order things online, but the things like tying these things together in ways that make it so that if you want to sell online using Amazon's infrastructure, you also have to use Amazon's fulfillment business. And there's no real reason to force that, except Amazon wants to capture both markets, right? That's the thing that we object to, not the idea of having a logistics business or, or being able to sell online. Or, you know, it's, it's the coercive behavior.
0: Here in Canada, the Competition Bureau has had an open investigation into Amazon since at least 2020. And last year, The Logic's Martin Patrick Quinn reported that Amazon's public policy director for Canada threatened to shut down Amazon Marketplace in Canada if the federal government passed American-style antitrust legislation. Over the last two years, Amazon has begun to change. Jeff Bezos stepped down as CEO and former AWS chief Andy Jassy has taken the helm. Here's Brad Stone again.
3: Maybe some of the conversation around antitrust has quieted a little bit because Amazon seems like a company in retreat right now. You know, under Andy Jassy over the last two years, it's lost about a trillion dollars in market cap. It had a punishing 2022. It, It really overexpanded during the pandemic. A lot of what was feared about Amazon over the years was its like headlong expansion into these other markets and the question of like, how will you know, non-internet companies with, without these internet multiples even try to compete with a company like Amazon? I feel like some of the, the bloom is off the rose.
0: Whatever Amazon does obviously has a massive effect on Canadians. But what about our own tech giants? On the next and final episode of this season, we're going to dig into one of those emerging tech giants. It's a company I know all of you are familiar with, because it's where we began this whole journey. Loblaws. That's next time on Commons. That's your episode of Commons. If you like this episode, please leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. This episode relied on work done by Brad Stone, Matt Stoller, Dana Mattioli at The Wall Street Journal, Martin Patrick Quinn at The Logic, and many, many others. I'd highly recommend checking out Matt Stoller's Monopoly newsletter, Big, Brad Stone's two books about Amazon, especially the most recent one, Amazon Unbound, and keep an eye out for Dana Mattioli's upcoming book about Amazon called The Everything War. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at commonspod. You can also email me, arshi, at canadaland.com. This episode was produced by me and Jordan Cornish, with additional production from Noor Azria, Our managing editor is Annette Ejiofor, and our music is by Nathan Burley. You can listen to Commons ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. And as a supporter, you'll get premium access to all our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. And you'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Canadaland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now. Click the link in your show notes, or go to canadaland.com join. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca CanadaLand to claim this offer.